want you to think of something, somebody most likely in your life that means so much to you, or maybe it's your job, maybe it's a thing, that if it were not there any longer, there would be this cavernous void in your life. Maybe a reverberating silence, even. You wake up in the morning and the person, the thing, the job, the, the whatever is no longer there, and yet you have spent a lot of years of your life with that person, that job, that thing, and all of a sudden, to your surprise, it's not there. It's gone. Maybe you grew up in, in your house caught on fire and you lost everything that you had. Maybe, again, it was a job. Maybe it's a relationship that you thought would always be there, and then all of a sudden, that, that resounding silence fills your life. Now, I know that's a morbid thought, but I want to kind of do a shock and awe this morning and kind of get that, that person, that thing, that place on your mind and thinking about that for just a moment because there's so much about this world that we take for granted. I mean, the air that we breathe, the water we drink, the food that we have, the clothes that we wear, we just go to the closet and we just expect a plethora of options. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's all gone. And then we appreciate it. Sometimes we do. Sometimes it's a, a sense of entitlement. And you know, there, there are even spiritual things that I think we can take for granted. There's uh, Take for granted our Bibles. How many of y'all own more than one Bible in your, in your life, your personal life? You own more than one Bible. Raise your hand right now. All right? If you have a smartphone, you can get a Bible for free. All right? So that counts. There are places in this world that they will give their life for this book. We take spiritual things for granted. Prayer is one of those things that we take for granted until we need it. Um, God, we take for granted. I'm not, I, this may shock you a little bit, but we can do this that I'm doing right now, that Robbie just let us in right now, that the kids are doing over in the next building right now. We can do this without God. Now, that may shock a little bit of you, but we can. We've done it enough. We're polished enough, we've been theologically trained enough that literally we can do church, have church, and not even realize that God's not a part of it. Now, pray to God that that doesn't happen, and pray to God that we will, we will, we will find a holy discontent inside of us, that if ever we find contentment in that state of professionalism, of ministry, that we can do it without God, that God would rattle us to the core. But the, the, the sad reality is that there are a lot of churches, and I have pastored some of those, where we can go on without God any given day of the week. Sometimes it takes tragedies of that, of that reverberating silence to awaken us to what we once had. And that, in those, those moments that we go through those, maybe it's a lost loved one, it's a family member, it's a, I wish I had this last conversation with this person. Maybe it's a lost, again, relationship job. It could have been you've given yourself 20 years to this one place and now all of a sudden you're not there anymore and they ask you to leave and you didn't leave on your own, uh, own will. There's lots of things. And then all of a sudden you have this regret that kind of comes over you. What am I going to do with this? How am I going to approach this? How can I rebuild and how can I go forward? And is there hope after this? And the, the sad reality is that we bring a lot of this on ourselves. 
for whatever reason, and I'm not going to point fingers. I'm not going to, uh, to say you did it yourself and this was given to you. I'm not going to play God in any of that. You have to do your own soul searching and you have to kind of plow into that and dig that apart. But the reality is life is hard and it is messy. And we got to figure out how to navigate it. We got to figure out what to do with it. The um, Leaving the passage, we're looking at one verse for the next for five-week total period here. We're looking at 2 Chronicles. It's way back in the Old Testament. Be finding it on your smartphones or finding it on your, in your books. Uh, be finding 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We'll be there in just a moment. But we're going to look at verse 13 before we go there. And it tells us kind of some sad news. Verse 11 tells us that everything that Solomon did was successful. That's the verse I want my life to end on. Period, exclamation point, everything Mike did, it was successful. I wish it would all end right there, period. But the reality is, that's not going to be the case. Sometimes I'm going to be living verse 11, and sometimes I'm going to be living verse 13. And when I'm living verse 13, I'm, sometimes I'm going to be living verse 13 because I brought it on myself. My pride, my arrogance, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, all those things we talked about last week, those things tear our lives down, tear our life down so that we no longer can function well and we end up living where God shuts up the heavens and there's no rain. And he sends devour, he sends locusts to devour the land and pestilence among the people. They go, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want that kind of God. I'm checking out now. God sends those things not because he's mean and bad and can't stand us. That's sometimes that those things come because he's loving us back to him. We've walked away from him. What did I say in the beginning? We've taken him for granted. We've walked away. We can do it without him. We've developed an arrogance about us. We can do it without God and we walk away from God. And God sometimes will send times of, of drought, times of desolation, times of misery, times of sickness, times of distress, times of, of absolute brokenness to us, not to be mean to us, but because he loves us and he doesn't want our life to become this dumpster fire. And so he will swoop down in some kind of, seems harsh, but gets our attention, way, and he's trying to draw us back to him. And those are tar- hard times, difficult times. What do we do with them? How do we live through them? That's verse 13. I love the next verse because it tells us kind of the, the formula. In fact, everything that we're going to be talking about is verse 14 for the next several weeks now. So just kind of hang on and dive in, memorize verse 14 because he tells us exactly how it all begins. Whenever you're in this drought, this destruction, this misery, this, this point of despair, don't turn to religion, okay? Please turn away from religion and turn to a relationship. He says, if my people, if my people, if my people who are called by my name, they, there's a sense of ownership, there's a sense of belonging, there's a sense of connectedness. If my people who are called by my name, 
And that's what we're going to go with. That's what we're going to spring off of. That's what we need to listen to. It's not go out and pray 15 Hail Marys and, and, and give a big offering to the church and go shake the preacher's hand and, and you know, do some good deed of service to somebody. And God will, in some kind of karma kind of way, he will somehow balance out your life and all of a sudden life will balance for you because your karma, your good deeds, so, suddenly weighed th- things out. Listen, we might have got ourselves into a mess but it's not going to be us doing good deeds that will get us out of that mess. It's going to be me being a part of God and God being a part of me. And then following his instructions. Following his, we, we kind of, we're kind of outlining this in kind of RE words. You kind of hit that stage of regret. You hit the bottom. You bottom out. When is that bottom for some people? I, I see some people hit the bottom. They come to my office. We'll talk. They'll hit the bottom. I think they're at the bottom now. No, there's another bottom. And they'll hit another bottom. And then I'll say, okay, they've learned that. No, they'll hit another bottom. It's like, okay, when are you going to connect the dots here? You've got to stop what you're doing. And so whenever that day comes, if you're a part of God's family and you're part of him and he's a part of you, then he gives us instructions. Regret, the first thing you do is you got to relinquish. Relinquish. The second thing, the second thing you got to do is refresh. And we're ta- talking about each one of these. So you first regret, hit the bottom, okay? Then you relinquish. I'm, I humble yourself. Put, put humility on, okay? That's what you've got to step into is the humble state of mind. And we'll talk about that in, in Refresher here in just a moment. But today I want to talk on refresh. How do I refresh? Where's the refresh button on my faith? And how do I move past this? Because here's one of the things we take for granted. Is we take for granted prayer, connecting with God. Until there's a 911 call, we take it for granted. And what we need to realize, this life principle, sin stains and strains our communication with God. It stains and strains our communication with God. So all of a sudden, we hit that moment of regret. We wonder, where is God? What are we going to do with this mess that I've created? How are we going to pull ourselves up or get beyond this? And it's at that moment that we start relinquishing. We, but the reality is, is that we've had this broken conversation with God now because of our sin. In fact, Isaiah 59 verse 2, speaking Isaiah, speaking to followers of Yahweh God, he says this, your iniquities have built barriers between you and your God. And your sins, listen to this, made him hide his face from you so that he does not listen. Do you realize God may turn the volume down on your prayers? Like, yes, I'm there. Why? Sometimes we're praying and he is hearing us. He's just working in our lives and stretching us out and causing us to depend on him even more. And he's doing a work in that. But sometimes the volume has been turned down on our prayers because the sin has been turned up in our life. And because we so much love more the sin, we love the sin more than we love God. So therefore we're trying to figure out God, but yet we're not willing to let go of our sin. Okay? That creates a tension. God just turns the volume down. We want to be God. I want to, I want to come to God on my terms. And that's not how it works. Okay, it's not how it works. 
I want us to read 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. I want you to memorize that this verse over the next few weeks, okay? Let's read it together. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Now he gives us a cause and effect, a, a promise and a response. There, what, what, what he does is he says, if you will do this, then I will do this. We're not going to talk about what he will do until we first of all address what we need to do. And what we need to do is we need to first of all humble ourselves. As I said last week, what we need to do is we need to relinquish yourself to God's leading, all right? Just relinquish yourself to God's leading. That's the very first move that we need to make. The very first verb there is to humble themselves. Now, I mentioned this last week, and I don't want you to miss this. There is a vast difference between humiliation and humility. Humiliation happens in an event, in a time you get egg on your face, you get shame in your life, and you feel dirty and nasty and unworthy, and nobody wants to live with that. Nobody wants to live with that shame, and you shouldn't, because humiliation says you're a bad person. You can't recover from this. There's no hope for you. You stink. You're unworthy. I've heard the voice of humiliation and shame. I don't want to live with that. Humility, I do. Humility is something actually the Scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 5. It says we're to put it on. We're to carry it. We're to wear it. We're to put, it's a state of mind. It's a, it's a frame of reference. It's what we're supposed to be in this world, that we are to be humble. We even said last week that the meek will, get a, will obtain what? Fresh joy. So meekness and humility is what we want. We don't want humiliation. That is degrading. What we want is humility. I can't re-share last week's message. You go back and listen to it. Let's talk about refreshing. Refresh your faith through prayer. Refresh your faith through prayer. Probably the most undeveloped discipline of the Christian faith is prayer. Probably one of the most unappreciated accesses to the God of the universe is prayer. Unless, of course, we've been pulled over by the blue lights and we're praying to God, God, help me get out of this. And I'll give you my firstborn child and everything else. Uh, or we're taking an ACT test or an SAT test, and we're like, God, I need the answer to this question right here. You know, that, then we'll pray uh, fervently and with prayer and fasting and all that kind of stuff. But in reality, prayer is an undeveloped discipline in our lives. Some of us really don't know what it is. Why? Because maybe we haven't seen it effective in our life. Why hasn't it been effective in our life? Go back and read Isaiah 59 verse 2. Maybe there's something that we built up barriers between us and God. Maybe we need to deal with some barrier breaking, some wall demolition, and that takes humility. So if you look at this passage that, 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 that we're looking at here in 2 Chronicles, and you find that, that, that word there, it's, just a, it's, just a, it's in the list of verbs that he just mentions. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Pray. What, what is this prayer thing? It's a, it's a word that is used here, pael, and it's, it's, it's a Hebrew word. Eighty-four times in the, in, 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 the, in the Old Testament it's used. Thirty of those times is used by one man, the man named Solomon, whom we're reading from. Thirty of those times in one chapter, in the chapter right before this. 
where he spends an inordinate amount of time praying, dedicating, asking God to bless and to be a part of and to give his blessings on. There are about a dozen different words in the Hebrew language for prayer, but Solomon loves this word. And so how does God respond? Does he respond to Isaiah 59 verse 2? Hey, I don't hear you. I've turned a deaf ear to you because there's sin in your life. No, I love this verse and just underscore it, if you will. It's in verse 12. And it says this, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night, and he said to them, I have heard your prayer. That's a beautiful thing. Imagine with me for a moment. You carve off some time, maybe before you start your day. You carve off a time. You set up a place, a sacred place almost. It doesn't have to be sacred. It doesn't have to be special. It doesn't have to have any kind of special oils or scents or anything like that. It's just your sacred place. And you set up a time and you put it on your calendar or you put it in your, in your planner or you put an alarm clock there and you're going to meet with the God of the universe and you're going to talk to the God who made you and can sort all this mess out and you do it every single day of your life. And then he says, you know what? I've heard your prayer. We, we, again, what I say in the very beginning, we take so many things for granted and then boom, 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 something happens and it's gone. It's like, oh yeah. Recently, this whole recalibration, if you will, time in, 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 in our life, I was sitting on the couch with Lori sitting beside me. I was just looking through our house. I was like, I thank God for that and, and that and this and that. And I even looked at our floors and I said, I thank God for the floors the floors. How insignificant is that I walk on them? I throw trash on the floors, but I was thankful for the floors in our home. All of a sudden, when tragedy and mishap happens, when, as he said in verse 13, pestilence comes, when drought comes, when life hits you, if my people who are called by na- my name will humble themselves and pray. And then Solomon says, or God says to Solomon, I heard your prayer. How are you doing in the prayer factor? What's your prayer life like? Let me say this to you. Is it maybe bold? You were talking about humility last week and prayer this week. If there's some way that I could gauge your prayer life, I could, I could gauge your humility. I could gauge your humility based on your prayer because if you don't pray at all, if you just pray when the cops pull you over, if you just pray when you got an ACT test, if you just pray whenever you think you're about to lose your job, if you just pray whenever sickness comes upon the family, if you just pray then, then really you're, you're just a self-made person and you don't really need God and you have a serious problem with arrogance as well as I. Because... When prayer comes into play, it's because I absolutely need God. I am dependent upon Him. I can't do it without Him. So when, it, when, you, when you talk about prayer, what do you know about prayer? So let me give you an anac- uh, some an acrostic here that you can j- kind of jot it down and just kind of measure your own prayer life. I'm not going to look at it. Nobody else is going to look at it. You measure your own prayer life. If you were to put it into an acrostic, then you might look at it like this, Acts, okay? Just write it down the side of the paper or it's already on your paper. Acts, A stands for adoration. Just basically giving praise to God for who He is. 
acknowledging for his beauty, his greatness, his splendor. You'll even see in Daniel chapter 9 in a few moments where he praises God in the midst of confession, which then leads me to the letter C, which is confession. Confession is that element of whenever, okay, God, there's something in me broke. There's something in me messed up. I, I've messed it up. God, I need you to help make it right. We're going to spend most of our time, in fact, 90% of our time, talking about confession today, confession prayer. Thanksgiving prayer, you, you, it's not just mealtime. It's throughout life. It's, God, thank you for the, for the floors in my home. God, thank you for my children each one of them and their unique personalities, and you name it to God. God, thank you for that personality because it's made me a better person. You get specific about your thanksgiving, okay? Be as specific as you can. S stands for supplication. Basically, whenever you bring your request to God, and listen, he wants to hear from you. He says you don't have because you don't ask. Sometimes we don't have because we ask for the wrong, with the wrong intent. But the point being is that he wants us asking. Ask is a very good, simple, how you doing? Measure it. How you doing in those categories of prayer? But you know what? I, I don't want to miss one. Because this can become quite self-centered, self-serving to a degree. God, you showed yourself to me. Thank you for who you are. God, this is the sin I did. God, I'm confessing my sin. God, thank you for giving this to me. Supplication, God, give this to me. All these kind of things about me, 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 me. But there's one word, I want, a letter I want to put at the top of that. It's the letter I. It stands for intercession. This is a sin. I don't know if you realize this. When we fail to pray for others. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23 says, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I can tell you this. This has been one of the most powerful parts of my own recalibration over the past month, month and a half. has been people praying for me. Paul told the church at Thessalonica, brothers, pray for us. Whether it was a, it was a, it was a text that would come every two or three days from, from, from Monty Moore, or it was, it was Gary Elliott on Facebook writing me, saying, hey, how can I pray for you today? You know, very specific prayers. Even got a great card from, from Andrea Johnson. She gave me the permission to share this with you. And I want to read just a portion of it, not the whole thing, but I want to read just a portion of what she said in this because I think it's, it's telling, it's, it's, it's transparent, it's authentic, and I really appreciate her sharing this with me and allowing me to share it with you. She said this in the middle, of, I'm jumping in the middle, she says, I feel I have let you guys, speaking of our pastoral team, down in this department. I pray all the time for different things. However, I have failed the Grace Point staff, by not continually and diligently praying for you guys. You guys give and give and very rarely receive. I praise you. You guys are in my prayers all the time now. You know what that was? That was a prayer of confession in a card. That was a prayer that, hey, I haven't been praying for you, but I'm praying for you now. I realize that because of this, I'm praying for you. If, if, if what comes through this black September, through this darkness, through this cavernous time, if what comes through this is that there's greater confession and greater prayer, then so be it. 
Let that happen. Let it rise up within us. Let me read to you a quote from Charles Spurgeon, a great pastor in in England years ago. He said it like this. The minister will always confess that this is the secret source of their strength. What's What's the secret source? Prayer. Prayer for the ministers. The prayers of the people must be the might of the ministers. Keep in mind, why the ministers more than any other person in the church needs the earnest prayers of the people. It is not the position, is not his position most perilous. Think about it. Satan knows that if he can once smite through the minister's heart, there will be a general confusion among God's people. There are times when this burden of of, of the Lord weighs upon God's minister until they cry out in pain as if their hearts would burst with anguish. You know, through this process, there's a whole recalibration that needs to happen. And one is that we've all got to pray for one another. We're literally thinking of some practical ways, and we're doing something starting this week. If you'll follow the church on Instagram, then you will get on Tuesday starting this week from now on, you will get an update, a photo, and specific prayer request for a particular minister on our staff. And you think, oh, that's very self-serving, Mike. You're one of the pastors. Yes, it may be self-serving, but it's also serving your family. Because the preschool minister, Stacy Ash, is right now structuring ministries and is praying over and is making sure there's teachers for every preschool class that we have. And I tell you what, you would be different, your children would be different if that was not taking place. We need your prayers. I don't want to focus anymore on the intercession today. I want to move to really what I think Solomon is talking about here, or God is talking to Solomon about here in verse 14 of 2 Chronicles, and that is confession, the prayer of confession. That's what I want to focus in on because let me just tell you this, prayer of confession is intense. Prayer of confession is not for the faint at heart. It's not the jovial prayer. It's not the thanksgiving prayer. It's not God bless the missionary's prayer. It is all out confession looking into your soul, you bearing your soul before God and letting him, listen, letting him point out the secrets of your own soul. The 12-step programs that are out there, and I know there's a lot of them, have this statement. You are only as sick as your secrets. You're only as sick as your secrets. What secrets are in you or a part of you? Ezra chapter 10 verse 1, you see the intensity of confessional prayer. While Ezra prayed, made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, for the people wept bitterly. It's not a laissez-faire kind of prayer. What I'm talking about, confession prayer here, of getting things right with God, is not this kind of waltzing into God's presence and and, and so forth. Take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Daniel. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 9 for the rest of, of our time together today. Because I want you to see an example, probably one of the best examples of confessional prayer that is in the Old Testament. This is a man who prayed three times a day. He was a prayer warrior. He 
prayed regularly. But this is a time, even when the king told him not to pray, even when the king, uh, praying to God was outlawed, Nehemiah, is, excuse me, Daniel is still praying. It's a beautiful story. That's why you can't take prayer out of schools, okay? The Supreme Court can't take prayer out of schools because prayer can't come out of your heart unless you take it out of your heart. Daniel was told by the king not to pray. He kept praying. He was put in a dungeon. He kept praying. God heard his prayer. It's a beautiful thing that happens. Now, we can take prayer out, but the Supreme Court cannot take prayer out. Think about it for a moment. The, the laws of the land could ban us from meeting here. It happens around the world. And this could become a public meeting hall. The, the, the laws of the land could change, and this book could be burned and banned from our, from our homes and from our, from our lives and taken from our computers. But one thing that cannot be taken from us is prayer. We are the ones who reject prayer. We cannot. We cannot. It's the pathway to healing. It's the pathway to restoration. It's the pathway. Daniel has been since he was age of 15 in exile in Babylon. He's about 80 years old now. It's been about 70 years that he's been in captivity. And all of a sudden now it's kind of coming to an end. And now in verse 3, if you look in chapter, Daniel chapter 9, um, it says this in verse 3, And I turned my face to the Lord. That's a big statement. All right, I turned my face to the Lord God. Literally, that statement says, I gave my face. That means everything, the blood vessels in my face, the sweat glands on my head, the neurons in my brain, everything was given to God. It was intense, intense prayer. Seeking Him by prayer and pleas for what? Mercy. Hang on to that word, mercy. We'll come back to it. He was praying for mercy. There's an intensity about the prayer that's going on. It says on in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. It's both a prayer of, uh, 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 of intensity, but it's also a prayer of confession. That's what I'm saying. This is not weak need prayer. Confession is real. It's broken. It's, it's, it's emotional. It's everything within you. What does confessional prayer do for you? What does it do for me? Three things. Jot them down real quickly. Number one, you are agreeing with God about your dirt. Those secrets, you're only as sick as your secrets. You're now bringing those secrets out into the open. You are agreeing with God about the dirt in your life. We create alibis for the dirt in our life. I'm only human. How do you expect a grown adult to be celibate and to wait until he's married or she's married? I'm human. I can do this. I'm an adult. Yeah, you can. You can ignore God's principles and laws and precepts all you want. And you can create your own alibis. You can shift the blame. Hey, I did it because they did this. Had they done this, had they appreciated me more, I wouldn't have taken from the company. Had they given me the promotion I deserved, then I wouldn't have done, I wouldn't have stabbed that person in the back. You know, you, you can play that, that, that kind of role all day long with everything. You can rename it. Our nation is renaming sin today and calling it choices, freedoms, hide. You can hide the sin. You can put it back so nobody sees it and you don't bring it out. And you don't talk about generational sins. We do this all the time. We don't want to talk about them. We push them back. We hide them back. Brene Brown 
in her book, Daring Greatly, probably the expert on shame, resilience, uh, alive today. She said this, that when we take elements in our life that cause shame and distress and nastiness and filth, and we take them and we hide them, we can actually do more harm to ourselves by hiding our regretful, shameful acts than by confessing them. We do harm to our bodies because we literally carry around that toxicity. We carry around that filth. We carry it around through every relationship, everything that goes on in life. We carry, we carry, we carry. And what we need to do is do what Proverbs 28, 13 says. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and, and forsakes them will obtain. There's that word again. Say it with me. Mercy. That's what we're aiming at. Because listen, listen, listen. When you are dealing with regret because of your own brokenness, because of your own stupidity, because of your own choices, because of that, the worst thing you could do is whitewash that, rename that, reclassify that. The best thing you can do is bring it out in the open, say, this is wrong, this is not right, I gotta get rid of this, and by God's mercy, we're gonna make things right. By God's mercy, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna experience that. I'm gonna save that till the very end. We'll talk about mercy, but see, the problem is we're still renaming it back here. See, what we call an accident, God calls an abomination. What we call a blunder, God calls blindness. What we call a chance, God calls a choice. What we call defect, God calls disease. What we call an error, God calls enmity. What we call fascination, God calls it folly. What we call trifle, God calls tragedy. What we call weakness, God calls it wickedness. You know, the dirt that I speak of, I don't care if you add water to it and you call it a mud pie and you play with it like kids. It's still mud. It's still mud. Making mud pies and renaming them is not what we do. And that's not what you see Daniel doing. In, verse, in two verses, he says it again and again. Verse 4, we already read part of verse 4, when he said, I pray uh, to the Lord and my God, he made confession. And then go down to verse 5, he said, we have sinned. And doing wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled and turning aside from your commandments and rules. Verse 6, we have not listened. Please hear that. Six different ways. He names them specifically. Me, last week, not listening as I got closer and closer to the door. Not listening to the still small voice of God. It's a sin. And it will land you in a pit. It will land you in a mess. Deal with the dirt. Call it what it is. It's dirt. Call it a mud pie if you want. It's dirt. It's nasty. It's not healthy. You don't eat it. Call it a pie. You still don't eat it. It's still sin. A revival broke out on the Wilmore, in Wilmore, Kentucky on Asbury College campus in 1970s. Whenever one of the students came to the to the then president of the seminary, of the college, excuse me, uh, Dr. Kinlaw, and talked to him after class about an issue that she was having in her life. She basically pulled the professor aside and said, I have a problem. I have a problem with lying. Lying. And he says, explain that. He said, I, I, I just tell lies. I fabricate things. I make things up. I, I just lie a lot. 
And, of course, he's thinking in the 1970s, he's thinking, okay, you're on drugs, you're, you're pregnant, you don't want to tell your parents. You're lying? Yeah, that's my issue. I'm lying a lot. Well, what do you do with that? Dr. Kinlaw said, you need to go and just confess to the people you lied to. You don't have to tell the whole world, but go find the people you lied to. How can I? I do it all the time. She said, he said this. He said, start with the last person you told a lie to. Okay, I know who that is. Go to them and confess it. And then every time you see someone and God brings a lie back, then you just tell them, hey, I, did, I was wrong. I'm sorry. In her, again, remember co-ed, sophomore year kind of experience in her mind, this will kill me. Dr. Kinlaw said, no, this will cure you. So she started. She went to the first one. She went to the second one, to the third one. God kept bringing them back to her. She went to one after one after one after another. Day three, she sticks her head in Dr. Kinlaw's office and said, I'm on my 34th person. And you know what happened? Because of this one co-ed sophomore student beginning to confess her sins, other people on the campus began to confess their sins. And it's documented in history. You can Google it to this afternoon. There was a revival in Whitmore, Kentucky on Asbury Seminary in the 1970s. It's documented in history. And it happened whenever a little sophomore girl started confessing her sins. Call the dirt what it is and let God begin to do a great work. Number two, you open your open shame is addressed and not masked. Your open shame. And that's one of the things that comes with sin. It's the the hard sell on the soft sell of what Satan sells us. He sells us the soft stuff, but really what he punches us with is the shame that that, that comes after that. And you find that here in this passage. It's one of the words that I studied in this entire recalibration time. verse, uh, Verse 7, it says, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. Open shame. And then he goes on, verse 8. He says, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. So this word shame is very clear there. It's a weight. It's a heaviness. Now, have you heard me talk about that? It's the whole humiliation versus humility thing. Shame is not good. Shame will attach itself to you and say you are a bad person. Guilt comes to you and says this is what you did was wrong. All right, you don't want shame, but what happens, shame attaches itself to you, and unless you deal with it, you will live with it. And it will stay on you like a bad stink. You got two options. You can mask it. A lot of people mask it. They try to hide it. They redefine it, just like I talked about earlier. Shadow comforts is what Jennifer Loudon called it. Shadow comforts. Listen to this concept. So this, 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 this person kind of came up with this phrase, and I think it's brilliant, because what do you do whenever you feel bad? Instead of eating a piece of cake, you eat the whole cake. What do you do? You go for retail therapy, and you take it and you max out the credit card because you need to buy more clothes to make you feel better. Or you need to go buy a new car, you, things like that. You know, whatever your retail therapy is, new computer, new gadget. You start a conversation with somebody probably you shouldn't have a conversation with because this relationship's not what it should be over here. So therefore, you turn to another relationship over here and you try to make that okay. And all of a sudden, it creates this shadow comforts. It comforts you for just a moment. 
But then it heaps more guilt and shame on you. Because all of a sudden, because you ate the whole cake, now you've got to go buy more clothes because you can't fit into your clothes. So now you feel worse than you did before you ate the cake. But, but I'm not kidding. I mean, you laugh because, because it, it, it's so true. You, you go out and you max out your credit card. So then your son comes home from youth group and says, hey, I want to go on a global adventure because I hear it will change our lives and it will bring us closer together, dad. And dad says, no, we can't because we don't have the money. No, because you sock, socked it away and spent it all on this other junk over here. And now you don't have the money to impact your child and impact the world. All of a sudden, things begin to, to unravel. And all of a sudden, that, Tempting conversation goes too far. And it costs you your family, and it costs you your siblings, and it costs you your career, or it costs you, it costs you, and more and more and more shame comes upon you. What do you do? If you're not going to mask it with some kind of shadow comforts out there, confess it. Get it out. Confess it. Get it out. If I confess, 1 John 1, 9, if I confess, that's what I do. I bring it to God. I agree. This is not right. Get it out of my life. If I confess, if we confess with our sins, notice everything that God will do. We bring the dirt. He does the cleanup work. He is faithful. He will forgive our sins. He will cleanse us. He will make us righteous. We bring God dirt. We bring God shame. He makes it right. That is such craziness. I'm sorry. There's not another religion in the world that will sell you that bill of goods. But that's what we have in Christ. And that's what we have in this book. And that's what we have in our faith. Is that we bring God our dirt and he makes us whole and clean again. He makes us right again. He helps clean up the dirt that we heaped on ourselves. But here's the problem, life principle for you. Number two, God will not fix what we're unwilling to confess. If we keep it and we hide it, David dealt with this for a year. He ran from God for a year. It's estimated that he ran from God after having his sleep affair with Bathsheba, after having Uriah killed, knocked off. Psalm 32, finally he breaks, I acknowledged. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Keep short list with God. Listen, call it what it is. Put it out there. Let God take care of the shame and the filth of our life. Number three, and I'm finished. You experience undeserved favor with God. We call for justice, and justice needs to be served at times. But sometimes God calls for mercy. God calls for what we don't deserve. Verse 9, we read the very first verse of Daniel whenever he was praying for mercy. Verse 9, it says, to the Lord, this is who he's praying, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Verse 17 to verse 19, again, notice the the number of times, throw it up there on the screen, guys. Uh, Here it is. Please for mercy, because of your great mercy. Everything he's building his prayer of confession on is mercy, 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 mercy. Oh, God, what mercy? What's mercy? You've heard me say this before. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. 
Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Not getting what you do deserve. The mercy of God. When what we bring Him is our dirt, He makes beautiful. He makes whole. He makes right. I know it doesn't make sense. And I know when you have been the one who's been hurt, you've been the one who's been betrayed, it really doesn't make sense because you really kind of liken this kind of being mad thing. But the way it works in God's economy is that when we confess in brokenness, a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. I mentioned that last week. Psalm 51, verse 17. Go check it for yourself. We bring our brokenness and shame and dirt to God, and He, with His mercy, somehow, somehow, blows me away. Somehow, He sees us through it. Robert Heffler wrote a book called Will Daylight Come? And he tells this story, and I'll try to tell it and do it justice. But he tells this story of Johnny and Sally, brothers and sister, who spent the summers, every summer, going to grandparents' house, spending time at grandparents' house uh, because they lived in suburbia and, and they lived, and grandparents lived on the farm and wanted to teach them ethics and work ethics and farm life and appreciate the things of life. And little Johnny goes out there and he gets a slingshot his very first day and he just starts taking it, trying to shoot it at everything he can shoot and try to hit. He can't hit the broad side of a barn. In frustration, it's time for dinner, and he heads back, heads back to the house and, and, uh, and just takes a little rock in his hand and just shoots it at, at Grandma's pet duck. Hits it dead on in the head. Kills it instantly. Johnny goes and picks up the duck and goes and tries to hide it in the, in the wood pile. In the wood pile behind, behind the barn so nobody would see it. He turns around, and as soon as he turns around... There's Sally, his sister. And she had that mischievous smile that sisters can have. They said, I know what you know and nobody else knows. That kind of smile. And so at dinner that night, whenever Grandma said, Hey, Sally, come help me in the kitchen and clean up. Sally just smiled and said, Johnny said he would like to help in the kitchen tonight, Grandma. And so she leans over and says, Remember the duck. So Johnny gets up and he goes and helps in the kitchen. The next day, Grandpa's going to go down to the pond and going to go fishing. He's going to catch some fish because every time you throw a lure in the, in the pond, it was a well-stocked pond, you're guaranteed to catch a fish. He, he's going to go fishing with Granddad, which is what he loves to do. And, but Grandma needs some work done around the house. And all of a sudden, Sally peeps up and says, Hey, Johnny would like to stay here and help you, Grandma, and me go fishing. Remember the duck. For about two or three days, that goes on. And every time, it was remember the duck, remember the duck, remember the duck. Until finally, about two or three days into it, Johnny broke. And he goes to Grandma. And he sheepishly tells Grandma, this is what I did, and I'm sorry. And Grandma gets down and gets right in his face. And she said, Johnny, I knew. I saw you do it. I was looking out the window when you were coming towards the house. I saw you do that. And I forgave you instantly because I loved you. And she said this, listen to this. I just wondered how long you were going to be a slave to your sister. You know what? 
Some of us right now are a slave to our own sin. We're a slave to the shame. We're a slave to the guilt. And we're wondering, how can I get out of this mess? How can I get out of this? If I take this to God, there's no way God will accept this. Listen, God is waiting for you to bring your dirt. Just call it what it is. It's dirt. It's filth. It's trash. It's sin. It's brokenness. It's shame. It's rebellion. It's wickedness. It's what he's just said right there in Daniel 9. It's not listening to God when he's talking to you. Bring it to him and let him make you whole. Would you pray with me? Father, nothing in all creation is hidden from your face. Everything, everything is open and laid bare before the one to whom we must give an account. Lord, we, we can run and we can hide and we can rename and we can reclassify and we can give alibis. And, but Lord, it's our own sin and our own life from our own choices and our own attitudes and our own actions. We have to own it. And we have to call it what it is. Lord, would you help us right now? Dredge up, uncover the secrets that are making us sick and that are holding us captive. Would you set us free? We need you. We need you this hour. We need you right now. Maybe some of us in this room need you more than we have ever needed you in our life. Dear God, would you be so present right now? As you continue to pray, I'm going to say amen in just a second. And then you're going to be free to get up and to move to one of our prayer partners that's scattered around the room. Go to them. I'll be a couple up here at the front. Be something in the back on the landing there. Go to them and just say, you can tell them the dirt if you want to. You don't have to. They're not going to ask you. They're not going to probe. That's between you and God. But you can just go to them and you can just say, hey, would you pray for me? I need a prayer confession. And I may not even know what to say, but would you help me? Would you pray for me? Father God, you hear our hearts. You know our hearts. You know our secrets. Lord, help us. Help us. Help us to be fine, to find freedom in you, cleansing in you, new life in you, right here and right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand together with us. Prayer partners, you go to your spots. You go to them. This is your time. Sing, pray, seek the Lord this time.